Hello everyone, my name is Ryan and you're listening to The Vegan Report. If you're vegan for the animals and you care to do more for animal rights, but you're not sure where to start, then this podcast is for you. Every week, let yourself fall in love with passionate animal rights leaders who will inspire you to find your voice, your own special contribution to the animal rights movement, however small or big it is. Today we are going to talk about animal welfare in Vietnam. Vietnam is a land gifted with beautiful scenery, a rich culture and warm people. But it is also a country plagued by the dog and cat meat trade, bad vet care and the growing consumption of animal products. To discuss this topic, I have with me Catherine Besh, a lifelong animal lover and animal advocate. Kat left the US in 2007 and she gave up her life riding horses and managing stables in Virginia. Since graduating from Washington State University with a bachelor's degree in international politics and a master in disaster management focused on animals in disaster and she writes about that i will leave a link to one of her article in this in the description below cat has lived in several countries around the world working as an english teacher and traveling in europe asia and south america cat started vietnam animal aid in 2013 it is vietnam's first and only animal sanctuary in 2016, she opened the first non-profit international vet clinic in Vietnam, which ran for several years before closing due to lack of funding. But the vet project will be reopening in the not-so-distant future as a mobile vet clinic and anti-species vet training program. Her work in rescue and vegan advocacy on the ground in Vietnam and Europe has given her a first-hand understanding of the political, cultural and economic context of animal rights in the global south. Thank you very much, Kat, for being a guest on this podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's dive uh, right in with um, my first question uh, for you is what circumstances led you to live in Vietnam? I It's something that puzzles me a bit. So yeah. could you explain? Yeah, it's sort of a strange story. I had no intent. This was all kind of totally unintended experience to run an animal rescue in Vietnam. Um, basically, Vietnam is something I've always grown up with, though. My dad was a Marine officer in Vietnam who was shot in 1966. And he was then, he and my mother came back to CIA 1971 to 73. So I'm actually a legacy in Vietnam. This is, um, this is the country I've known about since I was born. My, my dad used his time in the CIA, my mom in the U.S. Embassy. They use it as a shopping trip, essentially, because the government has to bring home all your household goods. Yes. And so my house was surrounded by Vietnamese furniture, Vietnamese art, Vietnamese ceramics, Vietnamese everything. And and so, like, I was the four-year-old who could find Vietnam on a map. And it's just always been like that. And so my parents are quite older, quite a bit uh, as parents. 
quite a bit older. And so they, I kind of, they were getting older and I, I had left Mongolia the year before. It was horribly cold, if you're wondering. It's the coldest capital city in the world, Ulaanbaatar. And I was like, you know what? I need some sunshine. And this is a time in my parents' life where I want them to see what had happened to the country they loved so much. Mm-hmm. And I brought, and I wanted to kind of bring that experience to them before they died. We're not real close as a family, but I thought this was something that would bring that to us. And I mean, it didn't really work exactly, but I but I came and I fell in love with the place. Um, I planned to stay only six months. I was doing my master's degree in disaster management online. And so I could kind of be anywhere in the world. And I really wanted to follow international disasters. But Vietnam to me didn't like it wasn't volcanoes and, and earthquakes, but we have seasonal flooding. And so I kind of took that as like, okay, well, this is my disaster to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got typhoons and flooding. Um, and kind of looking at how that how that works in the developing world and and how uh, global south and 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 that's just kind of what kept me here initially. Um, was that I was able to to kind of sustain myself with my master's degree and some freelance writing while I was here. And then poof, I ended up with an animal rescue for the past decade and I never left. Yeah. Oops. Well, that, I mean, the whole story is amazing. Uh, I did not realize how profound your relationship with Vietnam was. My whole life. Yeah. yeah, you have this childhood link with uh, the mm-hmm. country. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you speak Vietnamese? My Vietnamese r- remains bad. Um, surprisingly, surprisingly bad considering the amount of time I've been here. Whereas I could go to Italy for two weeks and speak better Vietnamese or speak better Italian than I speak Vietnamese after a decade. Um, it's just one of those languages that requires quite a bit more um, effort than others. And I've been rather busy, but yeah, I do speak Vietnamese. I, in fact, I say this in Vietnamese all the time. Toi noi. Um, thing Viet Luan Luan Yung Ma Kom Hiu, which means I speak Vietnamese all the time. I just can't understand <laughs> <laughs> because it's a, people think it's a small country. I mean, if you really look at the country, it's actually rather large, and there's a lot of dialects within mm. there, um, and they change significantly from province to province. And so it's not just as easy as like learning some words. Yes. It's like you've got to really understand the accents and 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 that can be that can be quite difficult. Yeah. And but no, I'll admit I haven't spent enough time fixing it. Well th- that's a good segue to uh, my next question. For someone who doesn't know much about Vietnam, um how would you describe the place? Gorgeous. This is gorgeous. It's um, it's a really beautiful and extremely green country. Um, and the food is, as a vegan, is in my opinion the best in the world. I haven't been to some countries that I know are um known for their vegan food, like Ethiopia as well. But um, but I can guarantee you that we have we have our you know we're pretty damn good here. Um, so eating is definitely not a problem. Um, I would say Vietnam is full of extremely friendly people. They call Thailand the land of smiles, which I think is crap. I don't think anybody smiles there. You come to Vietnam and you can see that they're just like a really friendly, outgoing sort of people. Um, I think it's just warm. They're generally just really warm. Um, I don't know. It's kind of, 
um, it's diverse. It's a very diverse country and people don't really give it that much credit for being so. Um, I mean, we have four climate zones in the country. So that alone should show you that there is quite a bit of diversity, um, you know, like in the north it's typhoon season for example you know and we won't get ours until october and like mm. you know it, it just kind of varies throughout the year um so so yeah i think the diversity the mountains everything are just really different but it, it is a very beautiful country and it never i never stop being surprised you know i think there's always more to discover just getting on my motorbike and driving into the mountains and and i always feel a sense of wonder here there's no escape from that yeah i know because one of my very best friend um uh, her boyfriend is uh, vietnamese and she mm -hmm. recently visited vietnam and she showed me some of the pictures of the place and i was like i need to visit this place it's so it's stunning it's, it's there are beaches there are the food yeah. like you said looks so incredible yummy. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the weather we don't suffer for food i can tell you that yeah i mean like i i don't want to paint a perfect picture though yeah. okay let me let me let me wipe the shine off what i just <laughs> said real fast okay it is a single party state with an not an independent judiciary um it is highly oppressive to its own <laughs> citizens um yes. it is heavily censored um there are a lot of things if you are a vietnamese citizen you are not living a great life um in in all cases i mean they are considered one of the happiest people in the world though which is interesting mm -hmm. but as far as like having any 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 ability to be part of the democratic process that's not really a thing um it's very rare to be to have anybody involved in in the political situation here that's not like uh already a suit i call them suits mm -hmm. you know the people the people in suits you know um so it's not particularly egalitarian in a lot of ways i think women you know domestic violence is prevalent i think um animal abuse obviously is something that's a problem or i wouldn't be doing this yes. um i think there's a lot of things that are are negative about it. the traffic can be horrible the honking <laughs> is annoying the karaoke yes. makes me want to kill myself um there you know like i i love to hate vietnam and i hate to love it um it is my home in every possible sense but but it's not it's not all shiny and pretty i'm not gonna I'm not going to lie about that. Um, I live a parallel existence as a foreigner in many ways because we're kind of to to Vietnam. We're a bit of like walking ATMs, being that we have a lot of cash to input as foreigners into the system. I have a I have a fully full foreign owned business license, um, so there there's a lot of things that give me privileges that I wouldn't have otherwise if I were actually from here. Hmm. So I don't, I, it's important to recognize the bad with the good. Yes. Well, you know, I had the view of uh, a tourist, basically someone mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. was, you know, pl planning my vacation and thinking yeah. about Vietnam. But, you know, even when I travel and I have traveled um, in um, many places around the world, I have every time witnessed Uh, a lot of um, displays of animal cruelty, you know. Sure, exotic, everywhere in the world. Yeah, yeah, exotic animals on leashes in South America. Um, yep. I, I visited Greece 
and I was oh Greece is awful yeah I was just there two weeks ago I yeah, mean the cats I, on the streets oh and, yeah my. I was shocked Endless. by the number of dogs just in Athens yeah. you know their, their capital yeah. city um yeah. welcoming you every time you went uh, on a stroll and right. yeah uh Turkey and and the yeah. cat situation there mm-hmm. um you know I, yeah. I, I was thinking about my time in Turkey and um with the number of cats outside i i wonder how are the birds doing there <laughs> you know right not be... great no. <laughs> probably not great yeah yeah and i mean i'd say the same for greece i mean those are probably in italy is the same population a high population of domestic cats people are not sterilizing them um i mean there are a lot of organizations in greece at least because they've got a lot more help because they're in that part of europe but um and they have a lot of tourists and they have you know still in spite of all greece's economic problems they still have a lot of people that are that are putting money into those projects including one of our staff um our director of operations she lives in greece and she does tnr trap neuter release of cats and so um, she's trying to help with the, getting that population down, but it's an endless cycle and there's not a lot. I mean, it's just so much work to keep that population down. And I believe those initiatives are the exception and not the rule. Yes. Yes, um, absolutely. Cause there's still so many people I was out trapping with her. Uh, I love cat trapping. I used to do it in Alabama. Um, and when I was living there and it is it's frustrating because a lot of people think that it's unnatural to sterilize animals they still have that very traditional and conservative mindset that it's just like we shouldn't sterilize animals because we are taking away their natural right to give birth um we try to explain to them that we're trying to prevent suffering and whatever and this happened this just happened i guess in the past couple weeks here as well trying to sterilize a dog and the guy was like no we just want her to have puppies again and again and again and i give the puppies to my friend and so we weren't allowed to free sterilization. We weren't allowed to do it. He's not interested in the well-being of the animal. He's interested in making sure that he is capitalizing upon another's um, reproductive system, just like you would in, say, the dairy industry or mm-hmm. any other industry, breeding horses, for example, or breeding dogs. It doesn't really matter. It's it's all kind of part of the same vein of exploitation. Mm. Well, Every time I witness those displays of cruelty toward animals or just, yeah. you know, bad, uh, just neglect of uh, the animal population, yeah. uh, when we're talking about, like you said, cats or dogs, mm-hmm. um, I, I was, I, what frustrated me the most was the feeling of um, being powerless. You know, I'm yeah. <laughs> not my country. I don't understand this country. Yeah. I don't know how to to help those animals. Uh, right. And even if I had, you know, the will to do so, I can't. You know, I'm, I'm right. going to leave in a few days. Uh, yep. This is an impossible situation. So I just have, you know, to close my eyes, to look away, yeah. to just uh, be in denial of what's it's hard. Happening. Yeah, and that's really hard. I live in a tourist town. It's the same thing. We get all these messages from people saying, I found this kitten on the side of the road. I'm leaving tomorrow. What can you take the kitten? No. Well, I mean, we can't because you're one of nine this week Hmm. that have sent me that message. And I know you feel powerless and helpless and whatever, but like, I don't own an island Mm -hmm. to put all these cats on. Let's, let's get this straight. There is just no place for them to go. And you have to get used to the idea that you can't help everybody. 
And I think that's one of the worst parts of being a compassionate and empathetic person is being able to close your eyes and say, I understand the big picture. I'm doing everything I can on a daily basis, particularly as vegans, um, to eliminate my part in exploitation, torture, and murder. And, and that's bigger than what everybody else around here is doing. So, um, so I kind of, I, you can't help every single individual. There's not the resources or the homes or the space or, or you know, the veterinarians and, and they're just, it just isn't like that. I mean, I, I can say that after 10 years running a rescue, but ultimately it is what led me to run a rescue. This idea of like, I'm not going to stand for this. I won't stand for this. I will do something. I am somebody who can do something. Well, I want um, to ask you about yeah. that. Um, yeah. Because um, contrary to me or others who have visited other countries or stayed there and did nothing about uh, you know, animal suffering, you did something. And yeah. I want to know how did it start? Um, how... Uh, did the, you know the feelings of wanting to do something translated into uh, actions? Yeah. What coffee? Those... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, coffee. It's extremely strong here. This stuff's like like jet fuel. Uh, yeah. No, I mean it really is. If you just go to your local like Asian market, pick up some Vietnamese coffee, and you won't even have to ask that question. This stuff is like it's like I don't know. It's it's stronger it than your average your, uh, cocaine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really messes with your idea of like, it makes you feel like a superhero. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like, yeah, it makes you feel like you can fly a little bit and start an animal rescue. And like, for that, I, I deeply regret that. But um, <laughs> no, I mean, like at the time, you know, I'd been here six months, or I guess I'd been here a year before, almost a year before I started the organization. I lived in one city for six months and then I came to Hoi An for six months and I had met some people. I met another girl who was willing to start a rescue with me. I was like, we've got to do something. She had like four cats at the time and I kept, people kept giving me animals. So I ended up with all these animals and I'm just like, because I'm just somebody who's always taking care of animals. I used to work with horses for, you know, 20 years. And then, uh, then now I've got, I've got this the whole thing going on. This is just what I do. I'm just the person that people give animals to. I've always been like that, even when I was just a little kid. And um, and so I kind of had this moment. There was this dog, Blair, who's still with us now. And she um, she was on the side of the road and she was like mostly bald. And she just was laying there. And I have this picture of her that I'll never forget. And she was terrified. And, and I just was like, you know what? No. No, not today. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done looking at this stuff and driving by. I can't do this anymore. And so the reason I started the organization was like, I realized that I couldn't afford a vet bill like that. <laughs> like this was going to be out of control and I, we needed to have some sort of public funding for this. Hmm. So um, I brought, I took her to the vet. I'm, you know, she was there for like a week, paid the vet bill. And then within the next couple of weeks, we put the, put the organization on Facebook 
and we kind of got started and then we had a fundraising party and got some money and and just kind of it went from there um i had no idea how far it would go i had no clue that it would end up just being we would be bombarded with animals over over the next couple of years particularly because we were the only people in the area doing anything um central vietnam I and mean, there was one foreign owned rescue in in saigon um, but there was still none in Hanoi and there was none in central Vietnam. And, and we were just like, we were it. And, and so, and so we just ended up being bombarded with animals. Most of them were dying anyway, and the vets were absolute garbage. And so they couldn't help us much. Um, I luckily had worked with vets, but I mean, with horses, you know, working with horses is not the same as saving kittens, by the way. I mean, the principles are kind of the same, but you essentially have to become a pharmacist slash drug lord. You've got to be able to, you've got to be able to, and we can get all of our, we can get everything over the counter here. You don't have to have a prescription for anything. Mm -hmm. So we can get our antibiotics. And as long as you've got a formulary for, you know, your dosages and can Google it, basically I was a Google vet. Um, because like, there's a lot of things that the veterinarian knew nothing about or nothing. No, it, it wasn't that he knew nothing. It's that he made up shit and that made it much, much worse. So, um, it was, it was horrendous. So within the first year I was like, we've got to start our own vet project. Um, well, because it was just so bad. Well, let's start first about the state of animal welfare in Vietnam. You know, the sure. reason why you, you felt like, uh, you needed to create um, your organization. Um, so you talked about uh, the care, you know, the healthcare of animals. Um, why are uh, the vets in Vietnam um, not skilled to deal with mm. the current situation or were with um, anything that has to do with, you know, uh, giving yeah. healthcare to animals? Right. So, yeah. I mean, the, the connection, we can't ever el eliminate that connection between the public health care system and the veterinary industry, mm -hmm. right? People like to divorce the two and they think they're completely separate. And I think that's just ridiculous. We're doing that to our own detriment. So we're like 98th in the world and public health care. It's not a good place to be. It's mm -hmm. not a great ranking. Mm -hmm. um, just the general health care of the humans in this country is pretty bad. Um, so when we talk about like, being able to have animals get decent health care, you're starting from a horrible system that simply like they just don't understand pharmacology. They just don't. I mean, they'll get, we have the second highest antibiotic resistance in the world. It's not, oh, I mean, they'll wow. give them, they'll give antibiotics out like TikToks, wow. you know, I mean, like it's, uh, well, there's just the basic for medicine who, for people who yeah. don't know what it is. Right. So antibiotic resistance is basically you're, you know, there's all these bacteria um, that are becoming used to all the antibiotics that we're getting, giving them. And so they evolve, they evolve to be resistant to them. And if you keep giving antibiotics for all these bacteria, what happens is that you're just going to end up with antibiotic resistance. And that becomes a huge problem for hospitals and for people and for animals and, and the entire ecosystem for that matter. It's not limited to just humans and doggies and kitties. Mm. It goes far beyond that. Mm. What, mm. Particularly when we're talking about farmed animals and going into the food system and all of that. Yes. I mean, it's and that very, could, very dangerous. 
you know, that means if you hurt yourself and you're, yeah. it's in, infected, um, we can't cure that. Um, can't help normal, it. Uh, um, you know, normal treatment will not have yeah. any effects because the bacteria is causing the infection are resistant to yep. any kind of drugs we have. It's terrifying. Mm -hmm. It is absolute. It's absolutely apocalyptic. Oh you know, and people aren't realizing that. And I mean, predominantly the over antibiotic use is in the animal agriculture industries. So, I mean, we do it with people here too, but the animals and, and they're all getting it way more than the people are even. Um, and of course that just creates this massive antibiotic resistant, like playground in, in, in farms and things like that. So, but it's the only way people know how to cure anything because the conditions are all really dirty. So basic sanitation is just something they don't understand. When, when we had our vet clinic and so eventually what happened was I, we had to open our own vet clinic. It was just a matter of like time. I mean, I saw a vet give a cesarean section without any anesthesia. And I was like, you know what? I'm actually done with this crap. I'm not going back there. This is really fucked up part of my French. So, so I, um, so I, I, we went kind of all in on the veterinary project and we hired a veterinary intern who had never learned how to wash her hands, who had never seen the inside of an animal dead or alive, who had been in veterinary school for five years, mind you, five had years. only five years, never seen the inside of an animal dead or alive never did any anatomy work, never did anything like that, never watched a surgery. She'd never seen a cat neutered, you did know, you that ever, was never discussed. Did you ever ask her what, what she did during those five years? Oh yeah, I mean, it was predominantly things like like studying chemistry and microbiology. It was kind mm -hmm. of like, like in the US we have like, you have to get a science degree and then you go to vet school. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like all those little things, but just books that, you know, like the veterinary books and were that were in their veterinary library which was tiny it was like smaller than my tiny house um they were all from like decades and decades and decades ago and only one was i remember looking through her library there was one that was on canine surgery in english of course where nobody spoke any english which is hilarious and the book was written in 1955 that was their most recent book on canine surgery 1955 i don't know about you but we i think I think we can imagine that there's a lot that has changed since 1955 in canine surgery. Mm -hmm. So, so that was, that was a, a telltale of like a really poor um, education system. Um, I've heard now that the better, the better universities are doing things like they have to be able to do a sterilization before they leave the university. But frankly, nobody's learning proper sed sedation protocols mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. They're just not getting it. Um, they're, they're, understanding of basic animal anatomy and biology is piss poor to say the least um but their practical skills they don't have any animal handling skills they fundamentally don't believe that pain management is something that should be discussed um and it's not because they're bad people predominantly the the people going into veterinary medicine are those that are that are going to work in the animal agriculture industry so they're going to be either paper pushers in the animal health department that are putting their stamp at um, at, at, at slaughterhouses, or they're working in the pharmaceutical injury industry, which is basically just making antibiotics to keep 
farmed animals alive until we murder them. Um, so you're not really learning like basic care. So it's not even just cats and dogs. I mean, you have to look quite holistically at the veterinary industry and where its failures are. Um, but I think in the beginning, I didn't really understand how bad that was. Um, um, I knew practically how they were failing, but I mean, they fundamentally didn't, you know, my vet here did not understand the difference between a steroid and an antibiotic in its function and, and, and applications. And it just, that's a big deal, <laughs> you know, I'm that's a really big deal. I'm yeah. Really, it's scary. Because, you know, I have a cat and she's old and I don't know yeah. what I would do if I did not have, you know, her vet amazing vets yeah yeah and thinking about you know the whole animal industry they rely a lot on uh the care of uh vets and so right. you have a, a whole you know the front line the 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 front line information is wrong Yes. So what do you do? And and not only that, you have to put it in perspective of how Vietnamese culture works in terms of hierarchy. So mm. they're very much like there's a lot of deference mm. towards people of a higher rank. Right. And so their ranking is like, OK, well, you have a doctor doctor's degree. So you are the word of God and I'm not going to question you. Doctors, veterinarians here won't even tell you what medication they're giving your animals. They'll be like, oh, they have a liver infection and they get and I'm giving him an injection injection of what? never know right so they just won't tell you that because that would make them lose face and they don't want to give away the information so that you'll just go to another vet and tell them what they what they've done so it is very like it's really sick in that way and that that's true in a lot of parts of the global south in terms of the and the public health system is exactly the same they won't tell you what they're giving you they won't give you information they're just like I am, I am the doctor. This is the word of God. And this is what's going, this is what it comes out of my mouth. And so it must be right. Do not make me lose face by asking any questions or by questioning my ability to provide you with great care. So if nobody's asking any questions and if they do ask questions, they'll just make something up if they don't know the answer, which is most of the time. So those pet owners, those people that really want to help their animals are not able to help their animals because the vet veterinarians aren't aren't capable of providing just that basic care and their their information is is so like it's it's the last word right so so there's it's kind of a give and take sort of situation that just won't improve until the veterinary industry itself improves and people are like you should rescue animals and you should give you know help more animals with who with who specifically with what vets did you intend for me to rescue all these animals? And so the first few years or two years before we opened the vet clinic was all about just like having all these animals that we were watching die from things that were that could have been treated mm -hmm. because we simply didn't have the veterinarians that knew how to deal with it, could diagnose or talk to us even about what was going on. You know, we had hardly any diagnostics. And if you don't have diagnostics, you don't have treatment. Okay, like it begins with like, do you have a blood machine? Well, do you know how much a blood machine costs? <laughs> no, you don't have a blood machine. But could you do a blood smear? Could you look at it under the microscope and give us some answer? Well, they don't know what they're looking at. They weren't taught that, right? So you're not gonna get a, you're gonna get sort of a vague, oh, they got a liver infection. Really, are you sure about that? How do you know? Can you tell me why you said that? 
you know, oh, I'm going to give them an injection of B12. Well, B12 doesn't solve everything. Give them B12, atropine, ampicillin, and say, you know, like saline, essentially. Those are these things that they just throw at every single animal. And they're like, surprise, animal's dead. You know, and, and we just, it's kind of like a situation you expect at some point to not have your problem solved when you go to the vet. So animal, people bring their animals to a vet knowing that it's probably like the last minutes of their life. So when the animal dies because of veterinary malpractice, it's not really surprising. Their interaction with the healthcare system as humans and with animals is just so negative that there's not like they don't really expect miracles to happen at a veterinarian you know just like they wouldn't expect miracles to happen when their grandma's dying or to get any real help you know i was born um in north africa and the culture right. there is you know when i talk with family who still lives there and i tell them about my cat and how i bring her to the vet and the treatment i uh, i purchase you know for for her yeah. uh, for her old age um they feel like it's a joke because yeah. it's just yeah. a cat why just are you spending your money on a cat and uh, you know a, an animal doctor what is that you right know? right right absolutely <laughs> i mean there are people here that i've met that didn't know that a vet was a job mm, yeah they didn't know that was a thing so if we're saying like, you know, like the, the media attention, of course, is focused on that Asians are cruel to animals. Mm -hmm. I think that we're missing a whole lot of that picture. This whole idea that there's this like savage anti-animal thing is just such a raging line of bullshit. It sells well. It sells well to dumb white people. Um, but I mean, the marketing is excellent um but but it's just a lie it's just like they lack access it's not like i ran a vet clinic that had predominantly vietnamese staff um, vietnamese clients for almost three years i guarantee you nobody walked into that clinic thinking i just don't care about this animal we were constantly busy you know mm -hmm. this idea that they don't care about animals or cruel to animals or whatever all the time just doesn't make any sense i don't i would say there is a it's just it's just stupid i mean they're humans humans and animals have had a close relationship for a pretty long time well you know i mean before getting it's ridiculous into the, the cultural differences and i right. want to get to that because it's such an interesting uh discussion it is um, yeah i want you to continue your uh, description of uh the the state of animal welfare in vietnam right uh, we talked about the healthcare and how it is completely broken yeah. Uh, to say the least. Um, mm. What about, and we touched on that, uh, the stray population, you know, stray cats and dogs. Um, would you say that the country is in a state of crisis in terms right. of the, That's the interesting. number of... Yeah. No. no, no. Do you know why? The dog meat trade. The dog meat trade and the cat meat trade. Yeah, people don't don't really want to acknowledge what this is. People are all boohooing about the dog and cat meat trade, and they forget that that's our population control. The vast majority of animals in this country are all called roaming owned dogs, so we don't have we don't have a stray population. And if we do, it's tiny. It's tiny, you know. And pretty much every dog and cat has a place it goes to get food and and shelter from the rain and 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 whatever are they taken care of there not necessarily 
but it's not uh, like a whole bunch of animals roaming. It's not like Cambodia. It's not like Laos. It's not like Thailand. It's not like, you know, it's not like a lot of other countries that have a large street population where animals just literally exist without a person's direct care. That's not how it is. So, so the, we don't have a population control um, prob, uh, program in the sense that like the, the reason the animals still aren't lasting more than a year usually is disease, dog theft, animals being sold into the meat trade from people who own them. Um, so it's not, so they have like a medical problem that the people aren't able to fix or whatever, or the animal gets old or the animal bit a kid or something like that. They're going to sell it to the dog meat guy. So that's always going to happen. So that's behavioral medical issues that goes into to the dog meat trade as well. Um, as a cat meat as well. Cat meat is much, quite a bit smaller, but uh, cats are harder to catch to be fair. Um, dogs are always, cats are a little shifty, you know? Um, but, but I would say, you know, people aren't looking at the fact that like, if you get rid of the dog meat trade, you have to replace that with a functional population management system. And what's going to happen in Vietnam is that they're going to use culling. If there is no sterilization program that is widespread, the Vietnamese government, no doubt in my mind, will cull the animals with strychnine, will shoot them, whatever, which is what other countries like Myanmar have done and, and Cambodia. They just blanket kill them, you know, Egypt. They, I mean, there's a lot of countries that cull them like that, right? Because yes. they're dealing with, you know, zoonotic diseases, particularly rabies. Um, and if a kid gets bitten and gets rabies and dies, I guarantee you that entire population of that region is going to be is going to be culled, you know. Um, so so these are all things that like we have to consider. Plus, there's a lot of infectious disease. They get because animals aren't being vaccinated. So vaccination and sterilization have to come together, right? Mm. If we're going to improve the population uh, or the, the lives of the population of the existing animals and prevent more from being born that are going to be born into a horrible life, we have mm -hmm. to have sterilization and vaccination. The preventative care is the only care here, right? Otherwise, it's going to be culling and it's the dog meat trade. That's how we manage the population because stray populations, man, that's how, that's how you have a lot of problems with human human interaction that's how you have the bites and that's how you have the the zoonotic transfers and and we just i want to i want that to be understood very very clearly about the dog meat trade that it is our population management system and if you erase it if you ban it which i don't believe is going to happen in a country with such weak rule of law to begin with but if you ban it and it actually works then you're going to have a whole lot of strays and it's going to be a different problem but they're going to die one way or another it's just you have to choose which way it happens well this is a strange economical activity because yeah. you know if there is a dog meat trade um why is there no um dog farms you know why right. Are they it's not really a thing here. After no. stray dogs. I... It's not really straight. I mean, so they'll come and they'll steal them or people will sell them or whatever. Or they'll pick them up, you know. Um, so dog theft is a really big problem for sure. And, but I mean, it's so, I mean, to be clear, there's about 
we estimate around 5 million dogs killed for meat every year. Mm. Um, and predominantly that happens in the North, but it's really like in every village, the dog catcher I just saw yesterday, same guy I've seen for the past 10 years. They do the same job. They just drive around slowly in the middle of the day and they can pick up animals that people don't want anymore and they can get, and they're you know, called dog catchers. This is the dog catcher. Yeah. I mean, he's just, yeah. And he'll take it to a restaurant and whatever. Um, so, or they'll put them on a truck to Hanoi, something mm. like that. I mean, the North eats a lot more dog meat than the rest of the country, but still, so 5 million dogs are killed every year, but let's compare that to the numbers in animal agriculture. So 551 million chickens are killed every year. That's a factor of 105 more, right? Yeah. Multiplier. 105. That's not a small amount. 44 million pigs are killed. So if we're looking at the, if you, if you look at the whole picture, dogs are actually like 0.7% of the animals killed in this country, not including sea life. It's well, a tiny, tiny amount. <laughs> well, and people just absolutely lose their minds. Five million is a lot. And if I think sure. about, you know, like you said, uh, if there was no dog meat trade, we would have five million dogs in the streets what yeah oh and that five million doesn't stay five million for very long does it yes. you know what they're doing in the streets they're shagging yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> right it's not just they're not just hanging out not making babies that five million is going to be 25 million within a year yes. right so like you want and and what are they going to do with that 25 million i guarantee you're going to find a way worse way than the dog may trade to kill them guarantee it 100 percent. that's the way the vietnamese government works so um that's their version of you know protecting the pub public health um so yeah i mean it is a sh i mean five million is a lot we are a country of 97 98 million people it's a very large densely populated country so if you kind of put it into perspective i think people people still are thinking this is a tiny little country <laughs> you know mm -hmm. i mean it's really not um and it's very densely populated as well so it's asia it's asia it's asia i mean but we're so much more densely populated that, like laos has like six million people in it and they're our neighbors it's super weird nobody lives in laos i don't know why i've never been laos to laos a, but there doesn't seem to have people in it it's a strange yeah. exception to the it's asian a weird exception to asia it's so weird so i can't wait to go because maybe it's actually quiet because vietnam is not um so so yeah i mean i think I think people need to put it into the larger perspective of how many animals that is by comparison. Do Am I saying the dog meat trade is a good thing? And I think this is where it gets confusing. No, no I am firmly against the dog meat trade. I have stopped dog catchers myself. I have taken animals from the dog meat trade. I have been to the, the, the restaurants. I have been, I've done all of this stuff. I see how they're killed. I see all of this. I, the dog catcher is in my neighborhood every single day. I don't have to wonder about the dog meat trade. This is a real part of my daily life i'm not some you know talking head in los angeles or london that's like oh boohoo the dog meat trade yeah okay well you were on vacation here at the freaking hilton for two weeks you don't know diddly dick about sorry mm -hmm. about the about the dog meat <laughs> okay. trade but it's really true it's just like they the all the people that cry about it are also non-vegans anyway you mm -hmm. can't talk about the dog meat trade if you got bacon grease dripping down your chin yeah. i'm sorry like i'm just not buying it well, if I was on a on a trip uh, in Vietnam and I saw, you know, um, a scooter with a, a dog uh, in a cage and someone probably in lots of them stuffed in it actually is what you would oh, see. Well, I, which is I pretty not, horrible. Yeah, you know, I would look at that. I would think, oh, that's 
what is that? And then yeah. that's it. That It's that revolting. Could, well, I would not have, you know, the idea of those are going to a restaurant and right. people are going to eat them would not even register in my mind because yeah. I have this cultural bias of, oh, yeah. the dogs are not for food. Dogs sure. are, you know, our best friends. So, yeah, I, I think there is also this bias of, you know, you don't really notice until you notice until until you notice and it and it is it is revolting for the first couple of years of the organization we talked about dog meat endlessly mm. i mean it was it was something even though i was vegan i but i mean i was vegan so it kind of like i feel like vegans are allowed to talk about it a little more if you're not vegan and you're talking about the dog meat trade i need you to shut up like uh, it's just i i have no patience for that um but but i would say I would say in the first couple of years, it is something that you see and it and it and it shakes you to your core. Mm. You know, I remember even just in November, I was in Cancun, which is a big city, one of the biggest cities in the south. And and there was a whole bunch of dogs just packed like there. There's no way they could have put any more in this time in this small cage that they put on the back of a motorbike. Mm. And, and it really is even after all these years, it makes you sick, even though. I have seen, so I've seen one dog truck on the highway where all the animals were stuffed in cages and they were going north. And in that time, in 10 years of watching of this organization and looking at animals in, in horrible situations, I've seen one dog meat truck. I've seen lots of dog catchers, but in that time, I've seen thousands upon thousands upon thousands of chicken trucks, duck trucks, goat trucks, cow trucks, pig trucks, all of these animals that are being slaughtered in such larger numbers than the dogs. And yet the only thing people focus on when we talk about Vietnam and when we talk about animal cruelty and animal welfare in general is the dogs. And, you know, the thing is, I'll admit, like, you see them more. Mm -hmm. You just see them more. Dogs are such an integral part of human life. In every part of the world, where yes. we, where can you go in the world where there's not somebody with dogs? Yes, they're a big part of our lives, so we focus on that. And I get it; they are wonderful. I love my dogs. I love dogs. I love animals. You know, but but ultimately, their suffering is an extension, not a, an exception. It's an extension of the existing industries of animal exploitation that exist all over the damn planet everywhere mm -hmm. in every country and in fact the vietnamese eat one third of the meat that an american does one third that is mm -hmm. a that is a fraction of what americans debt are are producing in dead bodies do right you mean like an expert um where america no consumption so in consumption um, yeah, so Americans eat three times as many dead bodies um, of animals that suffered and died yes. for no mm -hmm. good reason than the Vietnamese, well, right? And I mean, that varies throughout the, the country, of course, depending on poverty levels and whatever, but still, yeah. Let's get into that because the best friend I, I mentioned, she, um, yeah, the, the food she showed me, you know, it looked really good. But Unbelievable, it was yeah. also, you know, packed with meat there was right. meat everywhere animal products everywhere and i was really surprised. is that different from canada well no i don't know no go to a restaurant 
If I mean, like, I I come back from Alabama and I'm like, where's all the? How am I supposed to eat here? True hamburger. You know, like I come down, I go, I would go to Alabama and be like, I can't even go to a restaurant because they put butter on every damn thing. They put butter and cheese on steamed vegetables. I I just want some steamed vegetables. Throw me a salad that doesn't have cheese and egg in it or chicken on top of it. You know what I mean? Like, I would say, I would say it's much worse in other countries than Vietnam. There is a lot of cheese in Western, you know, cooking, but yeah. You know, I, I saw a lot of meat, just right. lots of meat. And but they're little just... pieces. Yeah, okay. Because you have to eat them with chopsticks, <laughs> right? So you, it may look like a lot of meat, but fundamentally, if we're talking about weight, mm-hmm. it's actually a tiny amount of meat by comparison to others because we don't use knives here. So here, I mean, in the, in, in the West, you have big chunks of meat that you cut with a fork and knife. Right yes. here, we have to be able to get these little pieces out with chopsticks. That's true. right. Yes. So that just like the actual volume is significantly smaller. Mm. Is it in a lot of dishes? Yes. But here's the thing about vegan food, because we are a Buddhist country in which the Buddhists here, this type of Buddhism is where they are vegan twice a month, full moon and half moon. Some people are, yes. are vegan only for two days. Some people are vegan for four days. Some people are vegan for 10 days and some people are vegan all the time. Right. So as a result of that, that is all over the country, those all of those things that you saw that were meat, they replicate in vegan food. Right. So every single dish is Mm -hmm. made into a vegan version of that to be fed to people on full and half. Which are called, I think, opasata days. Um, But okay, yeah, that's that's where the surprise uh, came from. The fact right. that, you know, I was not expecting that from Vietnam because no. in, in my mind, Vietnam is a Buddhist country. So why mm-hmm. are they uh, eating so much meat? Why right. are they, you know, exploiting animals so much? Because, you mm. know, you look at yep. China and there's this big uh, vegetarian movement in China. And yeah, it's you huge. look at India, same thing. And mm-hmm. you can see, you know, the influences of, Uh, buddhism and hinduism and such um Mm. so i was expecting the same from vietnam but Mm. no not exactly i think there's a lot of i mean as they get richer Mm -hmm. then this is true around the world as as countries get richer they are also increasing the amount of dead bodies in their food that is that's just the standard graph you know like it just goes up together so vietnam is becoming wealthier and they don't have like a vegan movement in that regard they don't the buddhists don't really i mean they're all you know the the, all the pagodas are all vegan you know all of that but like ultimately they're not like spreading the word of veganism on its own it's about Mm. compassion and 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 whatever um but ultimately that doesn't mean that they're not raising animals it doesn't mean you know they're not like it hasn't or their family members or whatever they they're not it's just a very different version of like the vegan movement from like the uk mm-hmm. for example you know um but but i don't see it at all in thailand frankly mm-hmm. you know i don't i mean i mean as far as vegan food in thailand i mean i'd give a big thumbs down to that yes. i mean like you know of course like in bangkok and stuff it's fine and and there are lots of places throughout the country but it's not at all like in vietnam where you can get vegan food any place you go um but you know there's you... always a a chai place c-h-a-y chai yeah how do you explain that disconnect that you know 
um, twice a month, they eat vegan for. And they get it. And, yeah. Yeah, because. And then all of a sudden, nothing. I yes. don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. It makes me endlessly angry. I am constantly pissed off at Buddhists <laughs> for being like, I mean, I live in a constant state of like, what are you missing here? Um, because they get it. It's like full and half moon and their food is great. And they're eating the same stuff and like all these great dishes and this yeah, beautiful, so you, you, you know, the, the cultural, why don't you do it all the time? Exactly. You have the cultural basis, the religious basis. Yeah. And religious you have spaces, great- yeah vegan food great vegan options so yeah why is there no you know support i think a lot of it is nutrition Mm. a lot of people have this idea and are brought up with the idea of just like americans that Mm -hmm. you need meat to survive that meat makes you strong and -hmm. without it you are weak right so i think a lot of it is nutrition based um and that's just wrong information the same wrong information i was given as a child you know um we so go back to I, the broken healthcare yeah. system oh absolutely mm. absolutely and they're like you know they're just trying to feed people meat in order to be healthier and when in reality it's quite the opposite but it just doesn't make any sense i get it i i mean it, it makes me really it makes me really angry i get pretty pissed off at buddhists yeah so how do vietnamese people perceive your sanctuary Um, that's complicated because I live, you know, I live in a tourist town, right? It's a UNESCO world heritage site. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's an old, an old city that was built by the Chinese and Japanese in the 15th century. And so we have this beautiful old town. And so we have a, a large influx of foreign influence, right? So it's not like I'm some weirdo for doing this, but in the beginning, it's taken a long time for them to, to, to accept it. But um, they're still like, I'm still about three kilometers from the center, which is like countryside here, which I think is really funny. <laughs> and um, and so there's still a lot of people, the people that live here may have gotten wealthier from, from work in town, but their education hasn't changed and their experience with the world hasn't really changed that much. So I think people think it's ridiculous what we do, um, you know, but but in general but then there's a lot of people that really support it as well um you know i mean there's a lot of people a lot of vietnamese just love doggies and kitties which is standard around the world mm-hmm. um but the idea of being a vegan organization and being specifically like anti-speciesist is something that is kind is really really brand spanking new to this country and we are the only farm sanctuary in the country um we're the only anti-speciesist organization we're the only vegan rescue so that makes us a from being an animal rescue, which they only kind of get anyway, to being mm-hmm. a farm sanctuary is is a big leap, you know, and to be yeah. like somebody who loves dogs and doesn't eat pigs, like that's like, why would you do that? You know, like, but that's true in every country. I don't feel like that. I, I We get that same problem. And whether I'm in France or in, in, you know, Costa Rica, they're like, so wait, you love dogs and you don't eat other animals? <laughs> <laughs> are you sure that's normal? Are you okay? (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, really. So we are freaks in a lot of ways, um, not just to the local people. Which again is very strange to me because um, if we're talking about the West, I understand from, you know, the Christian, Judeo-Christian heritage, even, Mm -hmm. you know, in Islamic countries, the the perception uh, 
of animals has always been, you know, this is food for you. Um, right. And this is sustenance for you, you know, and there's nothing more to that. And then there are, even then there are a few exceptions, you know, like um, yeah. who's that saint um, Francis of, yeah, of Assisi, Assisi yeah. you know, uh, there are a few notable exceptions to that and some, and of course, veganism is born in, in the West. Uh, mm. We could say that. But if I think about Asia and its Buddhist, you know, background, cultural background, and when I think about countries like India or uh, China, where being vegetarian and caring for the animals is pretty, you know, it's understandable. It's recognized. And Yes and no. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, well, you know, um, my favorite mock meat is Taiwanese you know right I exactly yeah forget about beyond meat and and the rest you know yeah i get my mock meat from a, a time asian supermarket <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. the best they understand you know the the, the palate yeah. and they have been doing this for for a long time so yeah you know it's so strange to see a country that that has all the recipe for um expanding their circle of compassion to every mm -hmm. animal um exercising that kind of discrimination you know um dogs mm -hmm. and cats in one cat category and and the rest in the other and we're going to treat the, uh, one category as food and the other as friends and right yeah it's it's just strange i have this strange i mean there are people after all though and i mean i think unfortunately mm -hmm. they're just kind of they realize that you know particularly here if you have big meat restaurants and hot pot and all of these things then you get a lot of foreigners to come you make a bunch of money off that and that's mm. kind of you know you also have to realize that vietnam hasn't opened up for very long i mean it was still yes. just in the mid to early early to mid 90s you know that they finally just opened up after decades closed off from the world um and so they're really just kind of focused on where do we make money and how do we spend our money looking flashy and meet just as part of that as well. Um, but it, but it is crazy that there is sort of this like ability to kind of separate the two. And I mean, like, look, I'm not going to say that people all treat animals well. I mean, they throw rocks at dogs. I mean, it's a huge it's a huge difference from how you see people treating animals in other countries in a lot of ways. Um, particularly men, I would say it all comes down to patriarchal nonsense and that, and that they are very much like men don't do nice things for animals, you know, men aren't mm. like that, you know, men, we throw rocks at dogs, we don't pet doggies, you know, that's stupid, you know, and so that crap just, I can't take that, I can't take any of that, but but I mean, like most of our dogs end up hating Vietnamese men. Um, and there's a good reason for it. You know, I would say kind of your average country bumpkin. Um, it's a lot like in the States as well, though. You yeah, know, I mean, it's like, this is my farm dog. He's my, I'm going to keep him on a chain and he's going to mm -hmm. protect the property and whatever. He's going to bark when something happens, but I'm not going to give him any basic medical care and, and whatever. I mean, this happens around the world. And a lot of it is related to like, kind of you know socioeconomic status for the most part and the, and the culture that goes with that socioeconomic status yeah and and we like you said we also find that in north america i knew i know oh, yeah. you, uh, shelter dogs who don't like men um yep. they just don't you know they're scared of men um and 
you know, that idea. And it's not an accident. It's not an accident. Yes. Men have been the abusers in most of our abuse cases. And and also this idea that if you become vegan and you're a man, you're doing something unmanly. Yeah. Um, you know, that we could link that to uh, the treatment of animals. You you described right. from Vietnamese men. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's machismo. It's a machismo and machismo <laughs> exists around the world. It's not it's not something exclusive to Vietnam. It's not something exclusive to Guatemala. It's not something exclusive to Turkey. Machismo is just kind of what is preventing, I think, a lot of otherwise decent men from becoming compassionate, empathetic people and able to understand that we shouldn't harm other living beings. Well, it's it's interesting to see how, you know, it's like a two sides of the same coin. Like you have um, animal abuse, animal exploitation, and it's common to all cultures, just yeah. like you have veganism and people who are compassionate yeah. to Absolutely, animals. it goes both and, ways. Yeah, it takes the form of veganism, it takes the form of Hinduism, Buddhism, mm -hmm. all of, you know, multiple practices. And, yeah. and sometimes, you know, it roots itself in the land or sometimes I guess it doesn't like in Vietnam, sure. um, but hopefully things will change. I mean, you're yeah, there. Yeah. It's yeah. But I mean, yeah, but at the same time, it's like, I think the one thing that has been very clear over the past decade is that like, I'm a white American woman. Mm. I am not going to change this country. I can pick up the mess and I can do, I can do the fundraising that gets something to help the veterinary capacity building, but ultimately social change is not up to me. It will never be up to me. Um, I think the whole white man's burden crap just doesn't play out. Um, I, I don't have any, any illusion as to my, my influence in Vietnamese people's lives, you know, and the way this country is going to change over the decades. I mean, I think, I think I have more of a global reach in that regard for English speakers around the world because we write most of our posts in English um, and to be like, this is what's going on here. And this is my perspective from being a, you know, a vegan in Vietnam who happens to also be American, who is the daughter of a, you know, Marine officer and CIA agent, you know, and this is my perspective is not like we're the oppressors you know like we're the we were the colonizers that they kicked out i don't have any illusions as to what i'm going to be able to do for this country my goal is to motivate the vietnamese themselves to create that cultural and social change um and to be back up and to support them in that change but i can't do it myself well you know you you would be surprised because when i uh first uh, became vegan and i told um my, the elders in my family my grandma um mm. the first thing she said was oh you're eating like the elders the ancestors of the family used to eat oh really yes and it was yeah. very touching uh to, to so hear funny. that because yeah, yeah. um i understood there that uh, i think part of the reason why in my culture meat and animal products became very common was because of colonialism you know north africa was yep. colonized by the french vietnam mm -hmm. was also colonized by, by the yep. french <laughs> i don't know if maybe their food was influenced by the french people i know yes definitely native, very much yes well yeah absolutely yeah might be the reason here because i know my native culture you know was very much in terms of food 
uh, influenced by the French and a lot of you know, meat, eggs, butter, and things like that are not common to, and, and they became common um, with colonialism. Right. Well, I mean, colonialism is one story, but like, let's not ignore the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, the UNDP, United Nations uh, Development. What am I? Development program? Why do I forget that? It is six <laughs> o'clock in the morning. Oh, it's just like my brain. I need another cup of coffee at this, at this <laughs> stage. Sorry. So the UNDP, the FAO, all of these organizations that are and, and universities that are injecting their influence and their money into increasing animal agriculture in this country. So the World Bank also has projects. Um, you know, these are all people, these are all large organizations that are using animal agriculture as a development process and using that as livelihoods development. And I say that with air quotes for a really good reason. So, I mean, like the idea that you can improve somebody's life by giving them an opportunity to exploit and kill somebody else to me is just not, I mean, that's, that's, that's insanity. It's that's awesome. absolute insanity. Well, it's fascinating. You know, I did not make this link, but it makes yeah, me think of it's uh, absolutely international organizations and their development process. Yeah, and you know, in Canada, we had uh, the National Dietary Guide, and then, uh, and I remember in school we would learn, you know, the different, you know, um, kind of groups of food you needed in your uh, diet and yeah. of course animal products were were there always uh, you know, milk, yeah. meat and and that guide you know we discovered very recently that uh it was um sponsored by the animal industry and there was this yep. bias and a lot Same of in the u.s yeah, yeah <laughs> a lot of dietitians you know were saying yeah. uh in the country um this this is not scientific this Mm -hmm. guide should not should not be taught in school and yeah. it just disappeared um yeah. overnight and i was thinking wow this was such a you know uh, a big part of my education like um, yeah in, in we were class. lied to yeah and we were yeah. lied to so i can't imagine how you know that influence must be great in in countries where you know, like vietnam where the healthcare system is so broken so yeah yeah yeah, so I mean, we're adding animal products to a country in which the healthcare system cannot handle what happens when you add animal products, which is obviously increase in cancer, it's an increase in obesity, it's a, you know, they're feeding what they what their main thing is doing is trying to put dairy into everything. The dairy industry is one of the strongest in the world and in, in, in terms of animal agriculture. I mean, their marketing is exemplary. If you want to learn about good marketing, you learn about how to sell breast milk to an adult, mm. you know, like that's that's your that's your best example. So they, you know, they're really pushing it on yogurts. They do a lot of like milk teas and all of these things. You're putting milk in a, like a ton of different products that they never did before. Mm -hmm. um, and the Vietnamese have a huge lactose intolerance problem. Oh. Um, but these international companies have come in and they're pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. These aren't usually funded by Vietnam. They're funded by international companies. Mm -hmm. One of the one of the biggest ones is Thai. Mm -hmm. And 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 it's just and, and Dutch and there's just all these sorts of and they're like marketing is like this is this wholesome, happy dairy cow that's out in the fields and we're just playing, you know, this natural, happy family playing like you should see the commercials. It's absolute garbage, but they do it in, in before a movie. 
You know, they have dairy and they have the dairy um, company commercials mm -hmm. at the cinemas. I mean, it's an incredible marketing campaign, you know, um, but they give them to kids all the time. And so these kids are actually becoming obese for the first time in the history of this country. Wow. You got fat kids all over now. Vietnam is the second least obese country in the world. And that's very quickly changing with the new generation of children being brought up on high sugar content yogurts. Right. All these little things that they're I mean, the Vietnamese put sugar in everything. OK, don't get me wrong. They love sugar. They're huge sugar fans. Um, but they have just packed that yogurt full of sugar. Why? Because that is addictive. They're getting those kids hooked on dairy early because it's sweet. Right. You're not eating natural yogurt. If you're giving kids plain yogurt, they're not going to they're not going to get excited about it. I can tell you that. Um, so, I mean, it's just this whole like push for these things, these animal products that I find it very difficult to stop, you know, if we don't have a social, a social cultural revolution, that's like, we've got to stop putting animal products in the mouths of all of these people. We have to stop producing it. We have to stop importing it. We have to stop eating like this. It's not healthy. We're supporting like uh, environmental destruction. Not only that, you're having a whole bunch of these like CAFOs built, concentrated animal feeding operations that are built in places where there's just no environmental regulation, right? right? So all of these things that come with CAFOs, which is the water pollution particularly, yes. which is really bad, especially considering this is a country that is a big fishing country. Mm -hmm. so you've got a whole bunch of water pollution. You're going to have dead zones up and down this, this coastline. Um, all of these things are coming from these massive investments into the dairy industry, particularly and pig farms that are huge and chicken farms and whatever. So we're intensifying agriculture, even though I think it's only about 70 percent of uh, our 70 percent of animal agriculture in Vietnam right now, 70 to 80 percent is smallholder farms. So that's 20 animals and under. Mm. So it continues to be like that. But that means most people have an animal. Most people have a farmed animal. This is something that you have a couple of cows, you have a couple of pigs in your backyard, you always have chickens running around. It doesn't mean that that's nicer exploitation. It's just that it's not fully, it's not making a whole lot of money. And it's just kind of, you know, the poorest people in the world happen to be animal farmers, you know, this idea yes. that we, we are increasing their livelihoods, or protecting them by ensuring that they're able to have access to the exploitation and murder of another sentient being doesn't make any sense to me. No. You know, with all of the the run of the externalities that come with that, it's they're shooting themselves in the foot. And the FAO is absolutely not going to say anything. Um, UNDP, IOM, World Bank, they're not going to do anything because they're run by people who think that farming animals is right. And that's how we increase, uh, you know, economic productivity. Yeah, well, maybe briefly, but we're doing so much other damage and we're harming so many more animals. You, you got to kind of look at the whole picture and those international organizations don't do that. What, well, honestly, Kat, um, if the West is... Uh, doing such a negative impact right now on Vietnam in terms of, mm. you know, introducing animal products. I say, it's good that you're here. <laughs> it's good that <laughs> yeah. you're in Vietnam. And yeah, yeah. Kind of importing something good now. Um, I hope so. Yes. And yeah, so let's talk about this. Let's talk about your sanctuary. Who are the residents mm. there? And what are your current projects? 
Right. So, I mean, currently we're trying really hard to get our veterinary project restarted, but we've been mm -hmm. trying for like four to five years at this point. It's very difficult to get the money for it because people hear veterinary and they just don't think that it's worthy of um, any funding, um, especially because we're a vegan vet clinic and an anti-speciesist project, which ruffles a few feathers. I'm not going to lie. Um, I am. I was built to ruffle feathers. That's kind of what what my whole life purpose is. But but anyway, it's difficult to get funding for. So we have a sanctuary. We're the only, like I said, the only farm sanctuary in the country. Um, as far as we know, there is another one. Nobody's been able to find it for us. Um, but we, um, so we've got two pig residents that are eight and 12. So they're pretty, basically the oldest of their breed in the entire country. Um, we've got four chickens who are lovely. Wow. They came to us just this spring. Um, God, we've got nine kittens, which is so many. I can hear the one screaming behind me. There's four in the room just behind me. Um, I fed you, be quiet. Um, I wanted them to be quiet during this podcast anyway. So, and then we've got another five that were just sterilized yesterday. Um, and we've got, I think 15 other cats. And then we've got, we're really reducing our number of dogs. We're really working hard to reduce the number of animals as much as possible because we need to put all of our funds into the veterinary project, which will ideally be a mobile veterinary clinic. So reaching the people that don't have access to veterinary care and providing vaccinations and sterilization. So ongoing preventative care in the rural regions in central Vietnam, and also being able to train um, Vietnamese veterinarians that are fresh out of graduate or fresh out of school so we get them before they've learned anything really <laughs> stupid and then we train them up so that they're being trained by our international veterinary staff so this is a big project we wanted to get started in january 2024 um but yeah at the moment we have something called kitten miss which is getting rid of all the kittens getting them all rehomed by christmas we want all those babies to have homes by christmas um, because, you know, people don't realize that every single animal is a real drain on our ability to do preventative work, um, not only on our time, but also on our financial resources and physical space. Um, so we really want to get all those babies out as quickly as possible to safe and loving lifelong homes, which is far harder than you'd ever imagine it to be here. Um, so we can also export, we have, I guess, three animals going in September, um, to the, um, to Paris and then they'll go to the UK. Um, so we do international exports as well. So if you want to adopt animals, we we definitely can do the rabies titer tests and microchip them and get them sent over within 90 days. Um, yeah, so we're able to get some animals out, but it's just a matter of like, that is a hugely expensive process. <laughs> that is so so inefficient in terms of like the number of animals in need here the biggest mm. problem is that it takes so much i mean like i'm happy they all have homes i'm really happy that i've been able to provide that i just did three last month to the uk and, and paris and I'm, I'm super happy about that they they deserve lifelong loving homes but it took so much money and so much time and effort to get them on those planes and then to get them transported and i had to rent a car to drive across the UK to bring them to Wales in the middle of nowhere. I mean, like it was some serious work. 
Um, I'm super happy they're there, but like we have to be a lot more efficient if we're going to address the problem that exists, right? Like I said, 5 million dogs are killed for dog meat every year. If we could sterilize a, a thousand a year, you know, like we're making a huge dent on it, but we can't do that. If I'm, if, if my time and all of my staff time is spent just trying to maintain the sanctuary, trying to just keep our heads above water in terms of funding our overhead, um, which has just been really hard um, and and trying to move forward with a project that's actually going to do the amount of work that we need to do for the number of animals that are actually in need. My job is to go out of business, Ryan. It's to, I, I, my whole job is to have no more animals to rescue, right? How am I supposed to do that if I'm focused on, on getting a puppy to Paris? You know, how am I supposed to focus on that if all of our time is taking animals and rehabbing them and paying vet bills and then putting them on airplanes to someplace else because local adoptions are so rare? And um, yeah. You're not actively looking for them. I mean, sometimes no. people come and just dump them. They fall on our lap. We get door. dumped. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, most of them are being dumped on us. Um, you know, one of the, the poodle that went to to Wales, she was locked in a, she was zipper tied in a beer crate and left at the end of our driveway. The four kittens that we just got right here, they were dumped on um, at the, at the um, shelter. And the other four, they were also dumped. Um, we had to bottle feed them every three hours when we got them. That wasn't fun. Um, that takes all of my energy and sanity to do. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, like most of them, I mean, there are some that we find for sure. Um, there are some that were like, basically most of our animals that came to us came from major medical cases mm. so they were animals that were like in a like actively dying and we intervened you know but unfortunately people people get quite excited about that on the day that they're rescued and don't understand that the vast majority of them are, are gonna end up not being adoptable or having very major difficulties being adopted particularly when it comes to cats and that we're going to have them for the next 15 years, but paying those expenses for like the existing residents in a sanctuary is unbelievably difficult. People do not want to, they want, they're happy to be like, oh, I'm going to help you pay this vet bill for this animal you got today. Okay, well, what about the next 15 years? What are you going to do about that animal then? Um, so ongoing expenses tend to be very difficult for all rescues around the world. Um, people, it's just not, it's not sexy. Uh, overhead isn't sexy um paying vet bills for a nine-year-old cat that never got adopted when we got him as a kitten um not sexy so um so unfortunately just the entire business model of sanctuary and shelter and rescue here does not function because locally it's so difficult to get adoptions it's not we're not in california we're in vietnam most people here like i said have owned roaming dogs so the animals are not safe we do not adopt to anybody that lets their animals roam around so everybody that has a dog will have to have it safe indoors and in a protected garden which 99% of people here don't have um, otherwise that animal is going to get stolen and killed or it's going to end up getting an infectious disease it's going to end up being in a traffic accident so we don't adopt to people like that which eliminates the entire local population mm. for that matter same with cats. Cats, we only will adopt to indoor homes, but it's a very hot country. Everybody has their windows open. Everybody yes. has doors open all the time. So we can only adopt to people living in apartments and those apartment buildings have to allow cats. 
So that is just in general, like our ability to take animals is ham hampered by the fact that they got to go somewhere. You, you can't just take them. It doesn't, it actually doesn't work like that. The math doesn't work out, you know, because the amount of animals that need to be taken, we simply just don't have the capacity to just keep adding more and keep adding more and keep adding more while we're ignoring the preventative work that prevents those more from coming. Right. It's, it's so crazy. that balance has to rebalance. It's way off at the moment. Well, local shelters here in North America have a hard time finding homes yes. for their residents. Mm -hmm. So you're in Vietnam. You're not in a uh, friendly environment uh, for, you know, animal welfare. And you have to do the same job. It's 10 times harder. So admiration. No, but yeah. you're you're doing some miracles uh, here, so it's. Thank you. I mean, truly amazing, and it, it's sad to see how you know even um, on on the international scene, you know, sometimes it feels like uh, Westerners and people in uh, richer countries have like um, have more values in media's in. Um, you know, everyone pays more attention to what happens in the West, even if it's something minor. Yeah, absolutely. There's a catastrophe and it's taking the lives of, I don't know how many people in a poor country and nobody pays attention. Yeah. But that, that same dynamic applies to animals. Um, mm -hmm. We There are also animals in Vietnam and in other parts of the world who are suffering. Everywhere, yeah. And yeah. We, you know, we're so focused on animals here, yeah. which is understandable. Yeah. But what about the rest? Because it's of in the your world? community. So, so it's in your community, and you're paying attention to the ones there. Well, imagine that you live in a country in which nobody pays attention to that, mm. <laughs> and and the people here don't pay attention to it. And the only people that pay for us to do this work live like 7,000 miles away. You also have to consider that our funding is not coming predominantly from the poor residents of the country that we live yeah. in and a community that does not understand or care about the work that we do, right? So they don't they don't get what's going on predominantly and they don't want to participate in it in terms of philanthropy. So, so not only are we ignored by people abroad because the only thing that people think about here is the dog meat trade or the Vietnam War, but we also just don't have access to the funds to keep going in terms of like rescue and, and rehabilitation, rehoming. You know, we just don't, I mean, it's very difficult to get people to connect to Vietnam. Most people couldn't find us on a map. So we're really in a, a major disadvantage. And then you add to it the fact that we are an anti-species vegan organization, which pisses everybody <laughs> off. <laughs> you know, like we are outspoken and absolutely will not stop talking about abolitionism. And I guarantee you that does not make us any friends. So you take a giant pool of people that otherwise would support us, even amongst the local population, because we're helping animals in general. And a lot of the Buddhists find that to be valuable. Um, but then you then you're like, oh, but we're vegan. And they're like, oh, I don't know. That's really confrontational for me. Yeah. Why? Because you kill animals. Yeah. Yeah, you do. So we actually don't kill anybody. And I'm not going to judge you and be mean to you, but I'm not going to lie about it. You know, my son is a pig. My real son is a pig. I know that sounds insane, but he is my son. 
And, and I love him more than anything in the world. And if you think he's edible, you don't support our work and you don't love animals. If that gets you all hurt because of the, because of the fact that it confronts you, you need to look at yourself, not at me as being somebody judgmental or whatever. You need to step back and be like, am I harming animals? Hmm. Yeah, we rescue animals from you if you're not vegan. That's a hard thing for people to take in. We rescue animals from non-vegans. Yeah, that is mind-blowing. You are a sanctuary. What are you protecting your residents from? It's right. the local population. The people that eat them, the which is around. 98% of the human population, right? So like, it's insane that we're like, we're really having to defend ourselves against people that think my son is edible, you know, and our chickens belong on a Caesar salad. Yeah, because they couldn't figure out that like plants have protein. And I'm like, well, I don't know, like stop talking to the marathon runner, Ironman triathlete who doesn't think that you need to murder an animal, you know, like, I'm sorry, we're not in the same boat. So like we do, we are confrontational in that degree, but it's like in that regard, I think, but that's just kind of who I am as a person. And I'm never going to stop being that. I mean, I was kind of a, a virulent meat eater before I was a vegan as well. I hated vegans. I, I, I told people I wanted to put them on an, on an island and napalm them. Like oh, I just no. was super anti-vegan. Yeah, I was a fox hunter and I worked for the National Turkey Federation in Washington, D.C. I was I worked for the farmers lobby. I mean, like people change. I get it. And I'm just but people don't change unless you talk about it. So vegans that run animal rescues that don't talk about veganism, they really upset me the most because the animals don't need silent vegans. They need people who are willing to stand up for all species. And it's not going to be the ones that are doggy loving pig eating um, animal rescuers. It's not going to be them. It has to be us. And we just have to stand up in it. And I guarantee you're going to lose a lot of money doing it. But ultimately, we've got, what, 2.8 trillion animals that are unnecessarily killed every year. And I'm pretty sure if they had to choose between somebody who was just going to keep their donors happy and somebody who was going to stand up for them, they would take somebody standing up for them and taking a hit. Well, you know, at least we work for animals. I don't work for I don't work for the public. And at least you want to support someone who is wholeheartedly um, in the fight, you know? Yeah. Someone who looks at your sanctuary knows that you're here for the good reasons, you know, and you're not right. going to, um, you know, this is not something about you. This is not, you're really, no. you know, you believe no. in your cause. And if I were greedy, this would be a horrible place to be. <laughs> <laughs> this would be the worst possible job. People are like, oh, you do it for the money. Really? <laughs> Show me the money. Show me. I would love to see that. Well, at least people should appreciate it. Did I just forget my pin code to my ATM? Is that where the money is? Oh, no, 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 no. We don't get anything out of this. I guarantee you. There is no joy in this work. It is all about the animals and we do the best we can. I mean, it kills us all the time, but, you know, well, we're trying to improve that. Like I said, people should at least appreciate, you know, your feelings, your sincerity in what you're doing sure. at the very least you know mm -hmm. they know that you're not bullshitting here um, definitely not you know so if uh listeners uh want to support your sanctuary mm -hmm. what should they do 
Um, we definitely can use the funds, but more than funds, I would say, you know, like donating is great. Um, but so is helping us get animals adopted so that we can move on to the, to the veterinary program. Mm -hmm. I would say being able to share our work is really nice. And to be able to say, Hey, there is a morally consistent animal rescue in Vietnam who loves and does not kill animals. We should support them. Um, I would say also, you know, you can always do fundraising for us, which would be really great. Things like running a race. Cause I'm, I'm a big runner or I was until my foot fell apart. Um, but I, I really love it when people do athletic events and they, and they fundraise for us in that way, because that's really good for us for, not only for the funds, but for marketing in general, getting the word out about us. We are in kind of a, a dark space in, in the sense of we have very small reach for the organization and and getting just getting the word out is really, really helpful so that we have a wider reach for our work. Um, and that gets us availability of more resources to do the work that we need to do and, and to get more animals adopted and to be able to, to get more staff, to be able to get more, um, more to get the veterinary project rolling again and have, have a, a, just a wider reach to be able to do that is invaluable. And, and the idea of, you know, fundraising for your organization, you know, make it fun, make it something, yeah. you know, doesn't have to be, you know, like a whole sporting event. It can be just a Those garage. are fun. <laughs> <laughs> but it can be just Not a everybody likes sale. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah exactly. Be, yeah, it can exactly. be going door to door or having a, yeah. uh, um, a dinner party, have a dinner party. Yeah, or a table at the entrance of your supermarket, something like that. And right. Uh, you know, talking with people, you know, gather with friends and do a game night and for right. uh, for your sanctuary. So, yeah, it, it can take so many forms and it can be so fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, to end this conversation, Kat, did mm -hmm. you want to add something? Um, yeah, I mean, there's just one thing that I think people, people forget is, uh, compassion fatigue is a big subject for me. And I think people, I want people to be a lot more compassionate to people that work in this field. Um, because we go through and see a lot of things that we can't necessarily always share and we shouldn't have to share. And it can be very dark and isolating. This is an unbelievably isolating job, even when we weren't, uh, you know, being, I, I think I think being where we are and being a vegan organization and all of that makes it very isolating. But I think even if you're in California, it can be very isolating if you run a farm sanctuary um, or a veterinary project or whatever, particularly as vegans. And, and we see such horrible things. And I want people to just really understand where people are coming from and to not be so... Um, I need the peanut gallery to shut up. I, I would say... I would say to acknowledge that people that work in this field need days off. Um, not all of us can be volunteers. To be a volunteer is a financial luxury that the vast majority of us that are professional caretakers don't have. Hmm. Um, I, I don't have a partner. I don't have family money. I don't have, you know, like a big credit card limit. I, you know, like we, I can't be a volunteer. I do take a very small salary. Um, we have a hard time even justifying that we pay our staff. And I think that's insane. Um, not everybody's in the same situation in every part of the world. And we have to be really mindful of that. 
but just in general, like understand that this is a really traumatic job. And when you send people pictures of the dog meat trade or whatever, you're constantly re like, we see plenty of horrors. Like we don't have any, any lack of that in our, in our brains. And it's very, very stressful. And we also have to say no to a lot of animals and that, that sticks with us our entire lives. I mean, I, I remember every time I said no to an animal because I know that's certain death. Um, people get very, very, very pushy online with rescues and are just like, you have to take this animal or I'm going to put him to sleep or this person's going to get it and whatever. And sometimes people don't understand the lack of resources. Sometimes we just don't have quarantine space. Sometimes we just don't have the staff or we don't have the money. We don't have the vets. We can't help. And we have to acknowledge and accept that we can't save everybody. And I think as long as everybody has that sort of understanding of the individual humans that do this work that I do, um, we can all be a lot more compassionate towards them and ensure that they do have real breaks, that they do have a, a living wage, that they do have, you know, adequate with staff to to make sure that they don't burn out burnout i mean in the united states the average person working in animal welfare and any, any sort of rescue is five and a half years i've done double that in vietnam i assure you it has taken its toll right so i think people need to really understand that this is a burnout job and to be kind to the people and not just be like oh you're an angel and and whatever but then the moment we want to take a vacation you're like i can't believe you're taking a vacation yeah. Well, yeah. Like, you know, I'm gonna I'm going to a museum today. As, what are you gonna uh, do about it? <laughs> you know, as someone who works in the field of fundraising, let me add to, to what you said. You know, you want the the nonprofits, the causes that you you are supporting to be run by professionals that are yes. well paid and that yep. who have the same uh you know standards of employment. Uh, that you have because you want the yep. best people behind your cause. Bingo. Um, you don't want like anybody coming in and just doing whatever. This is not how things get done. You need professional, you need yeah. professional conditions. And that's mm -hmm. something very you know, counterintuitive. And it comes from, you know, this Christian background of, you know, you're sacrifice. Not yeah. You're right. not doing um the, the god's work or something like that right no we're, we're being no we're people that have student loans um yeah we're we're humans that have health insurance um exactly. we have to we have to drive something we have to have friends we have to we have to participate in the world like everybody else or our job suffers and i know that more than anybody because for most of this 10 years i didn't have any of that and you know for the first three years i didn't take a salary at all because i was doing my master's and i had a small income from student loans and then i started my phd and so which i had to quit because i didn't have time for um, but ultimately, yeah, I got nearly 200 grand in student loan debt. I mean, it's not like I'm in deep trouble. I'm in deep trouble for being in this job. Um, but I live far away. Come and get me, America. You know, like I'm not paid it. Don't tell um, them, okay. <laughs> I don't tell them I'm here. Um, but 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 in general, I mean, I think that we need to professionalize the nonprofit world in the sense that like people aren't going to do good if they can't live a normal life while doing good. We can make so much more money in the private sector if I were if I just ran a vegan business, I would be rolling in it with the amount of effort and and passion that I put into it but instead I'm working in a nonprofit and I get nothing and people think I deserve nothing 
Um, and that is very frustrating. And also, I want people to think about what you are against. You know, the, yeah. the, the they animal can't industry, but also the big problems that you're going yeah. against. You know, it's a uh, David uh, versus Goliath uh, situation. I try to get through a day without punching anyone. That's my, <laughs> that's actually like, if I get to the end of the day and I'm like, you didn't scream at anybody. You didn't pull a knife on anyone. Nobody got kicked in the face. You're doing great, Kat. Keep it up. Well, you need that's my all, job here. All the possible, you know, best resources uh, behind you. You need everything in your, you know, arsenal to go against yeah. that big giant. So, we do. Yeah. Amazing. So let's stop this conversation here. Okay. <laughs> and I would like to express truly how um i respect what you do and i admire Thank what you. you do and i think you're so strong uh for doing what you're doing and truly thank, thank you. you thank you for for advancing the cause of animal welfare in vietnam and mm -hmm. having taken the time you know to answer my questions and to mm -hmm. explain to listeners you know what is happening there and share your insight and experience you know mm -hmm. this it's been a valuable 10 years i learned a lot yeah <laughs> exactly you're an expert yeah. now on this topic yeah definitely your your voice on that is truly precious so thank you very much Kat. For thank you for that. letting me voice that i think it's not it's not often i get to express like the things that have happened here and discuss kind of the realities on the ground so i appreciate it Thank you everyone for listening. Make sure to spread the word on the good work of Vietnam Animal Aid by sharing this episode with family and friends. Next week, I have a very special episode for you. I'm going to be talking with William Lowry, legal counsel for Animal Partisan, an organization labeled as a major extremist group by the animal industry an organization suing the FBI. Subscribe now and don't miss out on this episode, which was a lot of fun to record. Finally, you can always reach me on Instagram at Vegan Report Podcast. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. Take care and see you next Tuesday.